We at the WBDC dedicate our Raising Up the Vote campaign and Make Your Mark podcast series in memory of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a woman whose legacy for justice, equity, and women's rights lives on. Raise your hands up! Raise them up! Welcome to the Make Your Mark podcast series, Breaking the Glass Ceiling, Women, Voting, and Equality, a WBDC interview series where influential women share their glass ceiling stories, how they fought for their voice and rights, became civically engaged, and changed the status quo. In today's episode, Breaking the Glass Ceiling, Women and Wealth Creation, we'll explore how we can achieve greater economic independence for women and minorities and in turn generate wealth creation, economic growth, and political equity. Today we're joined by Janice Baudler, the president of the J.P. Morgan Chase and Company Foundation. I'm A.D. Quigg, a reporter for Crane Chicago Business, and I'll be your host for today's conversation. So first of all, Janice, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Well, I know your first job was waiting tables at Pizza Hut. Um, how did you get to your current role? And can you walk us through your leadership journey? Oh my goodness, you've done your homework. Uh, yes, prior to J.P. Morgan Chase, my entire experience with corporate America had been as a waitress for um, Pizza Hut. Other than that, my career was entirely in the nonprofit sector. So this was a bit of an adjustment. Probably like a lot of people listening, I um, I started working in high school. I worked multiple jobs to help put myself through college. I got my start professionally working in Cleveland. I'm from Northeast Ohio, working in community development. I loved working close to the ground, seeing change really happen. But I, I knew one house at a time was not quite enough for me. I, uh, I wrapped up my graduate work at Cleveland State at took my policy background to DC, where you make big policy things happen. So bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, I started at Unidos US, where I was for a full decade. And I'm so incredibly proud of that work. Over, over those 10 years, we built a real powerhouse, an authentic perspective on how we were busting down barriers to building wealth and generating opportunity for Latino families. That really led me to work a lot with banks and, and get to know, uh, obviously, the roles and responsibilities of banks in generating wealth and creating economic opportunities. And it's really by um, sort of a, a twist of fate and a little bit of an accident that I found myself at, at J.P. Morgan Chase. It's been about seven years now that I've been here, first in a strategy role building or investment thesis, if you will, and then in the last two years as president of the foundation. That must have been a big adjustment going from block by block, house by house work to like big policy. What was that adjustment like for you? One of the most important things for me here is I think I wouldn't have gotten my federal policy job if I hadn't had on the ground experience. Uh, Unidos, when I worked there, was National Council of Barasa, but Unidos has this really special formula where it works through its network of affiliates who are working in Latino communities across the country as well as a policy voice. And the connection between the two really are its strength. Because I'd had that experience working directly with families, I could bring that inside the beltway. And that was incredibly important. On, on some regular basis, even now, I'm, I'm just sometimes dumbfounded by how 
um, unattached people can be from the day-to-day -day challenges that people are experiencing in their neighborhoods and in their communities. So I saw that as a real advantage, even though I was coming in as a newbie, um, not having a ton of federal policy experience before I started that job. Talk to me about some of the women that helped you along the way. What did they teach you about leadership, mentorship, and creating that ladder for other women to climb up? So this is the question I was waiting for. And I have to start by shouting out the many, many Black women in my life who have been my mentors, my role models. I grew up in Northeast Ohio. My mom is white. My dad is Mexican. And he wasn't really around. There was not a lot of diversity where I grew up. And I didn't really see myself in the professional world around me. And um, there is a, a small but mighty Latino population in Cleveland, and it's growing since I grew up there. But it was really the Black women who I worked with who were like, hey, like, come, come over here. Let me take you under my wing. Let me show you how to use your voice. Let me show you how to use your strengths. It really helped me build my confidence to take my authentic experience, the things that I experienced growing up, and put them front and center. And that became like the organizing principle for so much of my advocacy work. I had firsthand experience with what we now call the geography of opportunity, sort of the idea that where you were born or your zip code determines your life outcomes. Like I had lived that, I had that firsthand knowledge. And it was the women of color around me who really helped me find that voice and I think made me a more powerful advocate. When I got to DC, I met really amazing Latinas who have um, helped me continue to build that voice and expand my network. But early in my career, I'm just so grateful for really Black women in particular who um, took me under their wing. Yeah, let's let's name some of them and give some specifics on exactly what they did. Because I, when I think about mentorship, you think of like answering calls and talking people through stuff. Talk about specifically what some of these women did for you. Yeah, so um, one woman, I don't know if she will um, hear this, but uh, Jennifer Madden was one of my um, my first bosses. She hired me at a little nonprofit called Famicos Foundation. And uh, one of the things that she did for me, I mean, I, um, I was so like raw and new to this work, right? You know, I was like fresh out of grad school. So she did a lot of coaching to help me prepare, gave me projects to work on, cut my teeth, all of those things. But she also stood back and let me talk, even as a really young woman at community meetings, at city meetings, she would say, like, you know, this stuff, like you go ahead. And she was like my safety net. I knew she was there. She was in the meeting with me if I got something wrong. But she said, you go ahead, make this presentation, talk to this elected official, this council person, um, whatever it might be. In addition to all the other work you do when you're you're sort of in your your first entry level job of um, sort of being in the guts of a project, she really put me out there and helped me get my um, my sea legs, if you will, on the content. And then she was also my first reference, trying to make the leap from a Cleveland nonprofit to a national advocacy organization when you're not living in D.C. is really challenging. And she made phone calls and answered phone calls on my behalf. And that was also incredibly helpful. I don't think I would have gotten my next job if it wasn't for her talking to Unidos and able to speak to my capabilities. And she had seen them because she had put me out there. Yeah, that's really, um, that's really valuable feeling 
supported, but also someone making you feel comfortable enough to speak up for yourself. What was it like and why did you move to philanthropy from policy, civil rights, advocacy? First of all, I'd had a chance to work with a number of financial institutions they were doing really interesting work with our Unidos affiliates. And I got really interested in the potential there for the corporate sector. If we got a little bit more creative on sort of the practice side, the corporate practice side, there's the opportunity for significant scale. And so that's, um, I think, the thing that really piqued my interest about maybe working in the corporate sector wasn't what I had originally thought I'd be doing. I, mean, I sort of thought I'd be a nonprofit advocate for life. Uh, and then this very unique opportunity with uh, JP Morgan Chase opened up. And in speaking with the team, they were in the midst of completely overhauling the, um, the foundation and really trying to align resources of the firm, the talent, the data, the products and services, and the philanthropy to line all of that up, to bring that to a social change mission. That was incredibly compelling and was the reason why I sort of took the leap of faith and moved over to uh, the corporate sector. But also, I think a part of this is that it's, it's just not often that we see Latinas or women of color in these seats in philanthropy and so while I didn't think about that as much at first, I was, I was chasing the mission. In my time since I've been in this seat and you're asking about mentoring and networking, that's become incredibly important for me that, that people see me, that younger Latinas see me and therefore can see themselves in this kind of role. Can you talk about some of the meaningful investments the foundation has made in the equity space specifically, or maybe some projects you're especially proud of? Sure. Love to talk about that stuff. <laughs> so first of all, you know, when you ask about investments we've made in the equity space, I want to unpack that for just a second, because when we start to think about racial equity and equity and philanthropy, it really, it brings to mind a number of different things. Certainly there are the investments. Are we investing directly in proximate organizations close to the community, close to the ground? But it's also how are we going about that? And that's been, for me, pretty fundamental to the way we've thought about this work, that we are a deep listening partner and that we're backing a set of challenges that have been identified by people closest to the community, by those community leaders, and then we're funding their solutions. I think we as a corporate, we run real risks if we are naming the problems, if we're designing the solutions. I mean, we could have a a lot of great intentioned work and it could completely miss the mark. So for me, moving with an equity perspective really means close to the ground, understand those challenges from people who are proximate uh, to the community and then back their play. And so some of the things, you know, I think in particularly relevant for this podcast that I'm most proud of, the Entrepreneurs of Color Fund, which is a dedicated fund, as the name would imply, for diverse entrepreneurs um, now working in five cities, of which uh, Chicago is one of them. And about 54%, more than half of those loans have gone to women business owners. We know that diverse women are starting businesses at faster rates, but they start with less capital and less resources upfront. That plateaus their growth. 
if we can make meaningful investments to get capital into the hands of women and women of color to fuel their businesses, not only are we generating their individual wealth, we're creating community wealth, we're changing the landscape of neighborhoods, many of which have suffered chronic disinvestment, and we're creating local jobs. And so this program, which we're going to continue to scale up, we've got some exciting things kind of waiting in the wings for later this fall, but it is by far one of the things that I'm most proud of. And it would not be possible if it weren't for my colleagues, Ted Archer and Kate Costa. I feel like I can't brag about their work without giving them a shout out here who have um, designed and built this program over the last couple of years. Can you talk about some of the barriers that women entrepreneurs are up against? We know that they're starting with less capital, less likely to ask for capital. But I think that that's, um, the capital is just one piece. I have heard from women over and over that are starting businesses in female dominated sectors, whether that's the beauty sector or in uh, a retail sector, maybe certain food um, production, um, sort of the bakers, if you will, and told that their business is not a scale business, that it's a, it's a quote, lifestyle business. You might not be able to see my air quotes. This drives me crazy. There's an assumption that those businesses are just subsistence businesses to feed their families. And that perception, I think, really clouds the market when in fact beauty is a multi-billion dollar industry food is a multi-billion dollar industry we are still buying clothes like these are things like women are in businesses that cater to women and we are a huge and diverse demographic so there is a ton of potential upside um, even if somebody is starting out as a baker in their kitchen i think women often face a perception that their businesses are not growth businesses. And that, um, that, that is a barrier that we need to deconstruct. Um, even before COVID, we were having a big national dialogue about representation, both uh, gender and racial representation. How are you leveraging your current role as a prominent Latina in one of the world's biggest financial institutions to kind of add to that conversation? And do you think because COVID put a different spin on it because before COVID started, we were in the Me Too era. And now we're kind of on several fronts having this conversation. I think COVID has really put on display, first of all, how interconnected we all are, how much the interests of all of our communities and all of our identities really converge. And so I hope, this is my hope, uh, that one thing that we come out of this with is a, um, a better sense of the need to be invested in one another's success. I know that sounds a little bit Pollyannish. I don't mean it in that way. What I mean is that we, we have to be able to see each other in the various solutions. I think if we're talking about capital for small businesses over here and investments in neighborhoods over here, and we're not recognizing the way those systems interconnect, then we'll be pitting solutions or potentially pitting communities against one another when we need to move on multiple fronts to make the change that, um, that we're all looking for. Over the years that I've been doing this work um, as, as a practitioner, as an advocate, as a policy wonk, and now in philanthropy, we've been around the margins of, 
of various systems, opportunity systems. This is a chance, and we, we like tweak around the edges of these systems. Like, how can we like inject a little bit more capital over here? How can we build more affordable housing units? How do we train for like the next job? I think the other thing that this moment, and I love that you asked about Me Too, if we put our, our Me Too moment, our racial reckoning moment, our health crisis, challenging and daunting, but the opportunity is to, is to say, these systems are not working for people. We need to rebuild the system and we need to build it in a way where we start by thinking about the most vulnerable, solve for them and build up from there. And when we do that, it is not only the right thing to do, but it's economically advantageous for all of us. We aren't leaving whole segments of our economy behind, which is just a drag. It's an economic drain that we don't need and quite frankly, we can't afford. So I'm hoping that we will we'll see a complete rebuilding of a number of the opportunity systems that are driving major things like the wealth gap. I don't think in that I really answered your question about representation. <laughs> um, but on representation, I'll quickly say, you know, I mentioned growing up, I didn't I didn't see a lot of people who looked like me and um, in professional settings. Honestly, I didn't even know that jobs like the one that I have now existed. I, I really hope that by um, not just sitting in this seat, but putting myself out there, telling my story and being part of a collective of other Latinas who are telling our story, other women of color, that more women see what's possible. And even more importantly, other people see us in these roles. They start to think of Latinas, Black women, other women of color as CEOs, as the heads of organizations, as credible voices in the policy space, as business owners. It's not uh, theoretical. It's not in somebody's imagination. They can see us sitting here. Was there a moment when you realized you were economically independent? And what did it mean to you at the time? I realized that I was economically independent, I think, when my, um, when my husband left the Marine Corps. Uh, he was an active duty Marine for 10 years. He left and became a full-time student at Georgetown, and I became our primary breadwinner. That was nearly eight years ago. This dynamic in our relationship continues. I'm the primary breadwinner for our family. Uh, Joseph is our primary care for our five-year-old daughter. In fact, he's in the other room right now handling Zoom school, <laughs> Zoom kindergarten. My daughter sees this in our relationship, that mommy works, um, daddy helps out around the house. I feel like she's going to have a fundamentally different set of expectations for herself in the modern world. Like she she understands the role of women really different than the image that I grew up with and, and maybe others grew up with. And I grew up with a working mom. That's not to say that, you know, my, my, I did not have a stay-at-home mom and no, um, nothing against stay-at-home moms. But for me, bringing that to the table, that that's the role that I play is incredibly empowering. Of course, the other moment was when I paid off my student loans. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I finally did that. Now I feel like a real grown-up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to talk about the civic participation part of the conversation. Um, how do you talk about civic engagement and political participation, with other women, including your daughter, and at work? And is that is that a hard, harder or easier discussion to have these days? 
I think it's an easy conversation to have. This is, it is fundamentally important that we vote. Um, so let this be the PSA portion of this podcast. If you are listening, pause. If you have not yet registered, register. If you don't know the voting rules for your state, please go check out those voting rules. Know whether you are going to vote in person or vote by mail, make that plan and vote. That is not a, a partisan issue. It is something that our company supports and is constantly messaging and makes accommodations so that JP Morgan employees can have the time that they need uh, to cast their ballot. My, um, my local polling place is in my daughter's elementary school. So before COVID, before she ever went to that school, she was coming with me to cast our vote. And I explained to her that this is how we use our voice and have a say in what is going to happen with our future. She's very dialed in, even at five, and knows the importance of voting. Women are an incredibly powerful political force, but I don't know that we always lean into it as much as we can. And I think in the last couple of years, I think particularly since the Me Too movement, we've seen a, a reckoning amongst women saying, we will take our seat at the table. We will speak for ourselves. And I think much like my early mentors taught me on the power of bringing my lived experience to the table as an advocate, we are seeing women bring their lived experience to civic engagement, whether that's as a mom, not a mom, a working professional, somebody in their family has healthcare needs, like whatever it is that sort of motivates people, they're bringing that to the table. I think that brings an authenticity and a realness to our political conversations. But let's not mistake politics and partisanship for civic engagement. You have your political beliefs. That's not the conversation that we're hashing here. I'll set that aside. I want all women to go out and vote. I want women to exercise their power show up at the polls, run for office, participate in business associations, like understand that we have something to give. Often when the world tells us that our perspective is just not as valuable, maybe because we didn't have like the kind of credential training that other professional politicians seem to have, but you got to cast that aside. We're fundamentally powerful. I'm sure in your work, you talk a lot about barriers to wealth. I'm curious for your thoughts on barriers to civic engagement. Do they share any common roadblocks, especially for women? Yeah, of course. Um, I think there's a lot here. If you're trying to hold down two jobs, take care of kids, maybe take care of your elderly parents, you don't have extra care, you don't have sick time, it's really tough to carve out the time on one particular day to go vote. It's hard to carve out the extra time to participate in a PTA or a neighborhood block association. And so we see people who have resources tend to dominate our civic conversations. I think we're seeing a lot of exciting work being done to build up uh, the voice, uh, the authentic voice of communities. And I will, I'll wrap that back to, um, to a lot of the um, philanthropy that we do, we have seen in our, in our work through advancing cities that the cities that are most ready to make um, big steps forward on addressing really sticky economic justice issues 
it's where they have a really robust civic infrastructure. And you've got everybody around the table hashing out a shared vision of the problems and a shared vision for the solutions. They're able to prioritize, they're able to think about where resources go. If you don't have that, it's really hard for your neighborhood or your city to draw down the level of investment that it's going to need to solve deeply entrenched problems. So I think, again, whether we're talking about election outcomes or we're talking about trying to address the issues in our neighborhood, that participation is important. And I think it's on those of us who have resources to make sure that those among us that are less powerful, less well-resourced, have a voice at the table. We have to make space for that. Have you had conversations with women that are just so sick of politics that they don't even want to cross the civic engagement bridge? No. I talk to a lot of women who don't like other people speaking for them, who are really fed up with some of the small ball parochial um, politics that we see kind of at every level. But I think the, um, the moment in front of us is really galvanizing women and women of color in particular. I mean, that our current recession, um, you know, it's, it's been dubbed the she session. Every woman that I talk to is um, laser focused on um, staying in the conversation. Uh, yeah, you were involved in policy work during the foreclosure crisis during the last recession. Mm-hmm. Do you see a path to turn the COVID crisis into something that leads to that lasting progress, big shift that you say we need? I think we have the opportunity. We need corporations, federal, state, local policymakers, our civic infrastructure, our nonprofit leaders, our movement leaders, all to come to the table for this dialogue. I think we have that opportunity. I don't think that we are there yet. It's certainly my hope in this role that I can play a part in uh, the corporate voice, and certainly our CEO, Jamie Dimon, J.P. Morgan Chase as an institution, is very active in these kinds of conversations. If you look at what the Business Roundtable is doing right now, for example, on the, um, the renewed statement of purpose. So I think we've got the opportunity. I don't think that we have yet really seized it, um, but it, I remain optimistic that we can. Can you talk more about what businesses can do to cultivate women leaders? Are we talking development pipeline, power networks, coalition building? What's some kind of concrete concrete things that you think the business community can do to cultivate women leaders? Yeah, a few things. Um, so we, we know tactically the things that help people move up internally. Um, they need uh, stretch projects, they need visibility, they need to um, start to build their platform. Sometimes they need somebody to take a chance on them and sometimes they need people who are gonna have their back when they mess up. We know that these are the elements of success and yet the rigor and consistency with which they're applied, I think maybe the the question. So my, um, my advice would really be to women to go out there and get what you need. And I think there are a few things that women can do. So whether you're a business owner or you're moving your way up the corporate ladder, the first thing to do is get a sponsor. So we talk a lot about mentors. Um, mentors are going to give you coaching and give you feedback. Sponsors are going to bang the table on your behalf. 
And it's somebody that is in, um, in your trajectory of the growth that you, um, that you want to have, but not your boss and probably not in your direct reporting line, but somebody who can see your work and is going to be your champion around the table that I think we definitely need to go out there and get our sponsors. The other is insist on feedback. Women, women of color in particular, don't always get good feedback. It can be really frustrating to not know what it is that we're not doing, whether that's, again, from an investor in your business or a, a supervisor or a set of peers on a project. So you have to insist on getting it. You have to like look people in the eye and be like, I can take the tough feedback. You can say nice things to me, but like insist on getting it and don't assume that you know, somebody tells me, oh, great job. Like, that's not enough. Like, you've got to ask and go after that feedback on, like, how you can be better and then action it. And then the last thing I'd say is, is really building uh, a network of women around you. Again, whether you're a business owner or you're making your way in your, um, in your workplace, having a network um, will also help you, like, sift through all that feedback. Because as much as you need to insist on it, that doesn't mean that it's all good quality, right? Sometimes you get feedback and you're like, ah, like, is that really helpful? Does this person have my best intentions in mind? Your network is going to be there to like, they know you, they're going to help you sort through that feedback. They're going to help open doors for you. They're going to have that shoulder to cry on. It's just incredibly important. And I, I'll say for me, like as extroverted as I am, I don't really like small talk very much. So I don't think of myself as a great networker, but I would separate networking from building your network. Building your network are a set of people who share your values, share your interests, who are going to be a resource to you over the course of your career. It's not just small talk here or there, that they're a real resource to you over time. Getting back to the foundation work, how do you guys measure equity? How do you know that you're doing what you set out to do? I'm going to tease that out a bit. So one question is, did we achieve what we set out to achieve? And that I actually think is pretty straightforward. You agree on a set of metrics, all of our grantees report in on the amazing work that they're doing, how they hit their target or how they didn't hit their target. Our progress on, on how we are doing in advancing racial equity or gender equity is much more challenging. Use that same kind of measurement tool, but you have to stay close to the ground. It can't be my definition of equity. It needs to be what the community sees as equity, and it needs to take into context the way that the sands have shifted. I mean, the most obvious example is the introduction of COVID and um, disrupts everything. I know that's a the understatement uh, of our time together so far, but we have to now shift our strategy and think about what does it mean to try to advance uh, racial equity and gender equity goals in this new context. That may mean that we are switching up tactics. We are um, funding new organizations. We're measuring different things. And so I try to um, sort of split the middle between our rigor and the consistency in which we are measuring and understanding what is working and what we're doing while also staying nimble and close to the ground on the way that disparities are playing out in the in the communities that we're, we're working with. 
I will say that I think this is an area where we and the entire field could get more sophisticated. So we're actually doing a lot of internal thinking about this now. But important to me is that we maintain a nimble approach here and we stay close to communities because at the end of the day, if I declare success <laughs> from the perch of J.P. Morgan Chase, say equity has been delivered. We like, did it. We did it. Like, what does it matter if um, communities on the ground don't um, are not feeling that that progress? Their measurement is the one that really matters. Are there projects in progression or successful projects that that reach that goal that you were hoping for? Let me give two examples. One is an organization in, uh, in San Francisco uh, run by a gentleman, Jose Quinones, Mission Asset Fund. And their work um, now over many years was to take the informal practice of um, tandas in uh, go by many names in immigrant communities, but essentially peer lending circles. This informal financial behavior where once a month, everybody pays the same amount of, um, into a pool and they take turns receiving that pool. So if you're on the front end, it feels like a loan. If you're on the back end, it feels like savings. This is the way indigenous communities and immigrant communities have a financed activity for eons. Uh, Mission Asset Fund said, hey, let's, um, let's formalize that by reporting it to the credit bureau. And so now all of a sudden people who are credit invisible um, have a credit profile. So very exciting work that they totally pulled off. When we started working with Jose, we said, okay, what is it gonna take to expand that work and in now into dozens of communities and understand how it could work uh, with a variety of different populations and have this opportunity to essentially help people who have no financial profile, no credit profile, which we know is so fundamental to getting started in mainstream banking um, to give them a safe on-ramp into that system. And so uh, we, we made a large investment to help them take it to uh, 10 cities. Now they are in many more cities than that. I, um, I'm afraid I'll get the number wrong, but highly successful scaling of that program. They've since been, been able to adopt, uh, adapt that model to different use cases. For example, helping uh, dreamers get emergency cash assistance to file the renewal for their application. So we're, we're able to see that model work really well and then become adapted to changing set of circumstances. So one other one, uh, which has been a major investment, we, we invested $25 million into the Financial Solutions Lab hosted by the um, Financial Health Work, formerly uh, the Center for Financial Services Innovation based in Chicago, really incredible shop and team there. And the, um, the original uh, hypothesis that we had was that there was uh, a real lack of innovation centered on the needs of those just outside of the banking system, the on and underbanked or those that didn't have credit profiles, but it wasn't just a lack of innovation, it was a lack of understanding of their problem and their needs. So again, this idea of getting close and proximate. And so we worked with them to design a series of competitions that put a problem statement forward and generated uh, a pitch competition for ideas. So the, the first one was what we've come to call income volatility. Just the simple idea that like, yeah, you fill out those monthly budget forms and it pencils. You should have enough money 
but in fact, the irregularity of income over the course of a month, the fact that bills are due on Wednesday, but pay doesn't come till Friday, those short-term gaps are what send people to payday lenders or high-cost credit. And so what could be the design-driven, tech-driven solutions that could make it easier for people to manage their finances more consistently in that kind of environment? Uh, We did a series of five of those competitions, incredibly successful, served over a million customers, high growth amongst the um, the mission-driven fintechs that participated in the program. We just last year renewed our support of this effort, brought in other partners who are supporting the work and decided, you know, we did really well, but what we want to do is get earlier um, to get to some of the really tricky problems. So using the same kind of investment methods, but trying to get to um, fintechs even earlier in their development to help them address the needs of some of the most vulnerable financially. As we look forward, what's kind of the big idea policy that we're missing that can help address what women and women of color need in particular? I think one of the most important things that we can do to support women as business owners, as workers, as um, women leaning into their own power in our corporations is to support childcare and early childhood education, but in particular, childcare. We know that in particular for vulnerable women workers, this is one of the biggest barriers that they have, a, a huge vulnerability. And COVID has really put this on display once again, where essential workers who don't have as much flexibility, who don't have as many resources, really struggle struggle to get access to childcare, and that could knock them out of the workforce, which is not the outcome that we're looking for. So there are a number of other policies that we're, you know, we're actively talking about, the earned income tax credit, um, supporting food security that I think are incredibly important for, um, for women. But um, as a as a nation, we don't have a strong policy around childcare. And I think that's fundamentally important for women. All right, well, Janice, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for listening to today's conversation. If you'd like to learn more about the WBDC's Raising Up the Vote campaign and about the power of voting to drive women's economic empowerment, please go to our website, wbdc.org backslash raising up the vote. We hope you will join us in this important effort to raise up the vote. This movement reminds us that we can and should, and indeed must pick up our banner today in 2020 and continue to enact necessary change as we participate in this year's election and other elections to come. Make sure to look for more conversations from Make Your Mark podcast series, Breaking the Glass Ceiling, Women Voting Inequality, and don't forget to join the movement at hashtag raise up the vote. And finally, get out there and vote on November 3rd. The Women's Business Development Center is a nationally recognized leader in the field of women's economic development. We're committed to supporting and accelerating business development and growth, targeting women and serving all diverse business owners to strengthen their impact in and impact on the economy. For additional information about the WBDC, please go to wbdc.org and thank you for listening.